welcome to From the Frontline. I'm Hunter Combs in the studio once again with Dr. Peter Hammond. Tonight we're discussing lessons learned from 40 years in the frontline. And Peter, you certainly have seen many frontlines in your last 40 years of ministry. Well, actually, worked it out. I've been into 42 countries. I've ministered in 38 countries on four continents, most of it in Africa and, hmm. and Eastern Europe. And during that time, I've given over 18,000 messages, whether public speaking, radio or TV, but most of that would be church services, Bible studies, chaplain services, open-air outreaches and preaching. So 18,000 meetings, 38 countries, 40 years, eight wars. Mm. Well, that's quite a, <laughs> quite a lot that the Lord has done in and through your life. And uh, what a testimony to God's faithfulness. And that's really what we want to talk about tonight is uh, the 40 years of what the Lord has been doing through Frontline, through your life. And 40 years ago, you took your first mission into Mozambique, I believe. Isn't that so? In 1982. Yes. First week of April 1982. Oh, and by then I was five years converted. So I was converted on the 3rd of April 1977 from a totally secular background, ambushed by the gospel, local Baptists hijacked out the local cinema and there I was minding my own business just expecting to see a film and next thing I know people are singing hymns and sing choruses and I'm thinking this is strange but anyway that's when I first heard the gospel and I was called to missions and wow uh, within those five years I joined Script Union Hospital Christian Fellowship did my military service and then got a motorbike and headed off to Mozambique so that hmm. that was that was 40 years ago to this week. Hmm. So 45 years ago, you came to Christ. And now, after five years, you took your first mission, cross-border, taking Bibles. Was the Jesus film a part of that first? Oh, yes. No, very much so. Jesus film had just come out in 1980. And, of course, I knew no Portuguese, hmm. let alone Shangon. So, of course, um, using the 16mm projector film, this was obviously a key part of communicating to another language group. And, uh, and of course, the Bible side. Although, uh, sad to say, because my theology was pretty poor, um, <laughs> I only took New Testaments. I mean, when we talk about Bibles, actually the first mission, I was only taking New Testaments because I thought, I don't want to confuse them with the whole Bible. Mm. Uh, you know, this kind of idea. In fact, I made some silly comments like, well, we don't want the people sacrificing sheep and setting up tabernacles now, do we? <laughs> so uh, let's just take the New Testament in. And I would have called myself a New Testament Christian. just shows mm. how shallow I was considering uh, the uh, there's no such thing in the Bible as a New Testament Christian. Yeah, um, there wasn't. There weren't any New Testament Christians. In no, yeah. in fact, the Apostle Paul was a Bible Christian. Which, when he said all Scripture is inspired mm. of God and is useful, he's referring to the Old Testament. That's the only Bible they had at that stage. Mm. Yeah. So certainly, there's been a lot of growth in your life over these last forty years. So, what are some things that the Lord has taught you during these last four decades in the front line? Well, after my first mission, I came back from Mozambique. Um, at, at the end of April 19, uh, 1982, and my pastor, Reverend Doc Watson, he challenged me. Uh, he was about to give me the Sunday evening service to give a report back, and he said, many missionaries tell of what they've done. I would like to hear what they've learned. And that was a very good principle, because right from then, from my first mission report back, it was, it's not so important what we've done. What have we learned? And there's always so much to learn. In fact, hmm. we go to minister the persecuted church, but as you've experienced too, we can learn so much 
from the very churches we're ministering to, yeah. too. So uh, we should never just be thinking about what we've done. We should be mostly focused on what have we learned, what's God teaching us through all this. And um, the one thing that this really challenged me to do is to ask a lot of questions. I've got an inquiring mind anyway, but uh, I've always taken notebooks and I've always asked lots and lots of questions. In fact, my first history teacher in Rhodesia in high school, Mr. Reese Davies, who was also a member of Parliament, he continually said to us, always ask why. What's the context? Things do not happen in a vacuum. Don't just accept the narrative. Don't just accept the propaganda. Don't accept the school textbooks, which are produced by committees that are appointed by politicians. Mm. Wartime propaganda morphs into peacetime textbooks. Think. Think outside the box. Ask why. What's the context? Every reaction comes from a set of circumstances, and it's in response to an action. Action, reaction, and so on. Mm. And so I've taken a lot of notebooks, and um, I've asked a lot of questions. And I must say, another very good challenge I got early on, um, after one of my early Mozambique missions, I was reporting back at a Baptist church in Randburg, and I don't even know who it was who said this to me, but as I was leaving the church, some person said to me, a stranger, what you had to say was very hard to believe. Next time, take pictures. Hmm. And what a good piece of advice, because why should a person just take my word for it? You know, it's one thing to say they're burning churches in Mozambique. It's another thing to show pictures of churches that have been burnt down hmm. with Marxist slogans on the side. And, and so I learned to take a camera and to take pictures and to document things and have dates and names and places. And I think that's extremely good advice. So those are some very helpful things that I, I was um, challenged to think. And someone else gave me a very good challenge after my uh, one of my first meetings in the States. I was on my first mission overseas to America back in 1988. And one man said to me afterwards, you explain the problem and the threat of communism very well, but what hope do you offer? Hmm. And I felt actually quite rebuked because there I was presenting the problem without offering the solution. I thought that mm. that should never be. We've always got to present the, the solution, the option. We've got to give everything in the context of what the Bible is teaching and the hope that's offered, and we've got to give solutions. We've got to uh, challenge people as to what can I do about it? What difference can I make? And so it's so vital uh, to never find ourselves talking about a problem without offering the solution. Mm. It's funny hearing about your teacher who asked you always to think critically about things. Why did this happen? What's the context? I can clearly see that that's impacted the way you look at history, the way you look at world events, the way you look at the propaganda or what the media is saying. Uh, you're always sort of taking the other side, if you will. You're never taking the sort of mainstream line of thinking. So, I mean, it's certainly impacted you, that teacher, from way back in Rhodesia. Yes, I mean... You know, how many teachers can you remember the names of? Son? Mr. East Davies, remember him so clearly. And I mean, this is like a very long time ago. I would have been uh, 12, 13 years old when I first mm. heard that, and I've never forgotten it. So, you know, let teachers take heart. Uh, never underestimate the impact you can have on a young life uh, if mm. you communicate in a, in a very forceful or effective way, in a creative way. Teachers can have a tremendous impact. Mm. Absolutely. So what are some things that you've learned about God's guidance over the years? Um, I mean, we see many places in Scripture where God guides people. Even this morning I was reading in Matthew's Gospel where God is guiding Joseph through dreams. Go here. Uh, this is what Mary is uh, pregnant by the Holy Spirit now. Herod's coming to <laughs> coming after you to kill you now. Flee to Egypt. And so there's this guidance that God's giving him. And he guides the wise men. He guides the family back into 
Israel after they've been in a time of exile in Egypt. So we see God's guidance throughout Scripture in many places. But how have you seen that in your life? And what are some things that you've learned actually about the Lord's guidance over the course of your ministry? Well, there's no doubt the most important way God guides us is through his word, through studying Mm -hmm. the Scriptures. And I was saturated in the Scriptures as a new Christian. I was reading the Bible all the time, uh, hours a day, studying. Um, Because I was brought up in a secular family, I never was exposed to the Bible. We never prayed before meals. We didn't go to church or Sunday school, not even on Christmas. So I came from a very secular background. So age 17, confronted with the gospel, I had a lot to catch up on. I mean, I think children brought up in a Christian home take a lot for granted. But you know, I knew next to nothing about anything of spiritual importance when I was converted at age 17. I was in matric, uh, 12th grade in school. And uh, here I suddenly am confronted with the gospel and I knew nothing about mm. the Bible. And so I was reading, reading. But uh, amongst the things reading the Bible, I, I saw immediately the importance of acting on what you read. So, for example, the first time that I read about the need to get baptized and uh, I heard the pastor talking about we're going to have baptismal classes, well, I went forward and joined a baptismal class and got mm. baptized. And uh, I saw the need for missions, and the first missionary came past the church. I went and joined his mission, mm. Francis Grimm Hospital Christian Fellowship. And, and responding to, to the teachings of Scripture with obedience is the most refreshing thing you can do. And, mm. and for example, I remember reading the Bible, if you know if someone has got something against you, then you must uh, leave your gift at the altar and go and make right with this person. And so... I immediately start to walk across pines to people from the youth group at the church I was ministering at, um, uh, learning from where I was a new convert. And uh, I started trying to make right. And I was, I was told by uh, one of these characters, said, you don't know anything, do you? If you'd been the church as long as we had, you know, you're not meant to take pastures like this in the Bible, literally. <laughs> and uh. actually said, you're not meant to actually do what it says here. And uh, yeah, I thought, well, um, it's a good thing that I took the Bible seriously. Um, but uh, as I was being guided, I saw the importance of following the leadership of my pastor. Because, for example, there were things that I would not have done mm. or I didn't want to do. And my pastor said, you must do this, such as guiding me to theological college saying, look, there's obviously a lifelong calling. You need theological training. And everything mm. within me was but Jesus coming before the end of the year. I won't even have time to finish my studies before the Lord's return. Mm. I, I, it's more important to be saving souls for the fire than, than getting uh, studies. And uh, But because I had made the commitment to obey my pastor as the scripture taught, mm. uh, I uh, did what he said, not what I wanted to do. And that was very good. And there were so many times that I see that following guidance of wiser, more experienced, godly people who committed to missions was absolutely vital and formative. There's, uh, who knows how many more disasters I would have made if I had just followed my own inclinations. And it's all too easy for new converts, especially you know, enthusiastic new converts, to go with their feelings mm-hmm. instead of going with the clear biblical principles and teachings of Scripture and the wise counsel of those who've gone this way before. So uh, when it comes to guidance, I think people must be very cautious of Mm. ever going out there on a limb uh, without being sure that it can't just be lucky dip method of, you know, Mm. I've I've picked a verse out of the Bible, lucky dip method. It needs to be the principle in the whole council of Scripture. So Mm. uh, guidance, overwhelmingly, God will never guide you to do anything that's unbiblical. He will never guide you to do something that won't glorify him. And uh, there's a whole lot of principles that we should be following when it comes to guidance. And uh, 
Well, we did the whole study on, you know, how do we recognize God's voice? And I, th I think those are principles we've got to apply always. Hmm. And I think that's so key to just have a practice of how are we going to respond in obedience to the word of God? I mean, how many sermons do we listen to and we go away and say, wow, that, that was really interesting. Oh, that's amazing theology. And then you never actually do anything in response to it. It's sort of just tucked away in some memory bank in your mind. But I think what you learned with Scripture Union and what we've learned in uh, Discovery Bible Study is what are you going to do in obedience to the Scripture? And then you keep each other accountable the next week, mm -hmm. and you're actually getting the practice of obeying the Word of God. So even in a simple Bible study, you're getting the practice of, you know, we're actually going to walk in obedience to this. And that's so key. You don't want to just have m mental uh, assent to, oh, this is, this is interesting. Oh, wow, that, that's nice, but not actually do anything in response to it. We have to have an act of faith. And part of that act of faith is uh, we have to engage in prayer. Uh, we have to engage in evangelism. We have to go out there and do something with our faith. So what are what are some of the things you have learned about prayer over the course of your ministry? Well, I think I learned the most about prayer from Francis Grimm. So Francis Grimm, the founder of Hospital Christian Fellowship, the first mission I had the privilege of serving, uh, he taught us how to pray intensively. Hours of prayer. Every morning started with an hour of Bible study and prayer. Uh, we'd sometimes have uh, days of prayer. We'd sometimes have nights of prayer at Hospital mm. Christian Fellowship. Um, he taught us to pray regularly through Operation World, and that became so seriously important. Operation World, which is an intercessory handbook for world missions, it has chapters in every country in the world. And so uh, as I was praying through Operation World, the Lord guided our mission into Mozambique, for example. It was while praying through Operation World at all-night prayer meetings in the army. And again, I was following what I'd learned from HCF, Hospital Christian mm. Fellowship. And uh, we're praying, obviously, for the countries that we are fighting against, Mozambique, Angola, and Zimbabwe, and so on. So we, we're praying through Operation World, and it just struck me. The least evangelized country in the southern hemisphere, Mozambique. Not one Bible for a thousand people in the country. Nobody under 18 allowed in church. Nobody under 18 allowed to be baptized. No missionaries allowed in the country. And it just electrified me, all these facts. And this is our neighbor. Mozambique's mm. right next to South Africa. Not a one Bible for a thousand people. You know, I can take Bibles in Mozambique. I mean, I can't preach, but I, I can take Bibles and maybe I could take the cheese form. And all these things started to coalesce. And it came from <clears throat> praying through Operation World. And so uh, getting good sources, our Lord command us, look at the fields. Well, one of the ways you look at the fields is um, looking at a handbook like Operation World or um, getting missionary newsletters and uh, uh, going on missionary websites and learning from missionary guest speakers and uh, reading biographies of missionaries in certain fields. And, and so looking at the fields, well, now God can guide you because how, are you ex how do you expect to be guided if you're not studying, paying attention? And so guidance comes in response to studying the scripture and looking at the fields and learning from examples of excellence. Now, these are areas where you can really be guided and, and learn. But if we just, you know, how are we going to be guided if we're watching secular TV, Hollywood mm. ghastly horror movies and junk like that, and immersing ourselves in the modern culture and having nonstop throbbing noise around? Mm. Well, how can you hear the still small voice of God if you're just surrounded by the world's media? We've mm. got to focus on the Word of God. We have to focus on the works of God, such as we get in history, Operation World, missionary reports, and so on. So what I learned about prayer is it's just so vital that we, we learn to pray the Scriptures. 
and that mm. we, we have our prayers guided by Scripture and that we pray without ceasing, which mm. means it's not just at a prayer meeting, it's throughout the day as we travel. Um, at Scripture Union, one of the things they taught was Bible before breakfast, first mm. things first. Before you reach for the food or the cereal or so on, mm. open up your Bible, feed your soul first, mm. and those are good principles. Mm. Do you have any <clears throat> stories of sort of miraculous answers to prayer throughout the time of your um, ministry? Oh, wow. So many. I mm. mean, it's just absolutely extraordinary. So I think that uh, <clears throat> uh, in in the course of this work, when I went on my first mission to Mozambique, I was, I was driving up, uh, in fact, from East London through King Williamstown. I was on my way up to get the Transvaal and head off to Swaziland. And, yeah, we didn't have money, <laughs> mm. basic things. And uh, I was wondering how would I even reach my destination. There wasn't enough funds for that. First petrol station to stop it. Petrol station owner comes out, looks at the stickers on my bike and my helmet. You know, Jesus saves in the front of my <laughs> um, motorbike and Jesus Lord on my helmet. I was, <laughs> I was obviously, you know, so like it was the, uh, we were just coming out of the hippie movement, the Jesus revolution mm. phase. And um, I, I would use words like, you know, join the Jesus revolution and you know, <laughs> Jesus, the greatest revolution he ever was. And that, that kind of terminology was pretty typical in the early 80s. And so the, the man was interested he said to the, um, petrol pump attendant, no charge, it was on the house. And, mm. you know, just something I wouldn't expect me, that's rare. Uh, and I would get to uh, one place or another and how God guided us to these people. Just the guidance of how we got into Mozambique, because uh, South Africa was at war with Mozambique, mm. and Mozambique was sending terrorists to us, car bombs and everything else. We were rocketing, bombing, and sending in our reconnaissance commander to attack ANC bases in Mozambique. So the state of war existed between our countries. There was no diplomatic relations. There's no consulate of Mozambique and South Africa, that's for sure. So uh, the only way I could get into Mozambique was to go through a neutral country, Swaziland. Now, the kingdom of Swaziland, what I know about Swaziland, um, never been there before. All I knew is what I'd read in Operation World. But uh, as I got to the Mozambique embassy in Swaziland, they said, you're not a citizen or resident in Swaziland, you need a letter of recommendation from a Swazi citizen for us to consider your application. Fair enough. Well, there's only one person I knew in all of Swaziland, and that's a local hospital Christian fellowship uh, uh, candidate um, uh, contact. And that was Dr. Samuel Hind. Now, I didn't know that Dr. Samuel Hind was the personal physician to King Sabuza II, the monarch of <laughs> the King of Swaziland, nor did I know at that time that his son, Dr. David Hind, was the Minister of Health of mm. Swaziland. <laughs> so a letter of recommendation from Dr. Samuel Hind on a very impressive-looking letter, it mm. got us the visa. And not only did it get us the visa, it got us a gratis, free, diplomatic visa. I've, I've still got my <laughs> old passport, uh, that full-page stamp. It looked very impressive, mm. diplomatic, gratis visa. And uh, you can imagine, that just opened doors. Now, I'm going to Mozambique. I don't know a word of Mozambican. Didn't know Portuguese, didn't know Shangon. Mm. I'm going uh, through the border post and through the roadblocks. And this, when they looked at the visa, just like waved us through, no searching on my first missionary. <laughs> this is just God's grace and provision yeah. because I knew nothing about what I was going into. And as I, whenever I had a motorbike problem, somebody came past who knew something about bikes or knew how to fix the <laughs> spark plug, whatever. Now, I had to learn the lessons the first time because the second time those things happened there was nobody coming around so mm. but God was very gracious to us the first mm. time 
And my first contact in Maputo, as I arrived in Maputo, um, I knew nobody there, just pitch dark, total power failure, and I'm greeting people as they're coming along. And uh, after a long time, somebody greeted me back in English, and I said, do you speak English? Yes. Are you a Christian? He said, praise the Lord. And I said, hallelujah. And he <laughs> said, do you have any place to stay tonight? Uh, you must stay in my house. I was, well, <laughs> God's answer to prayer. He said, do you have a translator? I speak Ronga, Tsonga, Tswa, Shangon, fluently. Well, you've got the job. And the next day he had organized hundreds of people to come together in a burned out, shot out church without a roof. But that was the venue. And uh, here, I mean, underground church meeting, secret meeting, hundreds of people mm. he had gathered together. And the people got super excited when I brought out the Bibles and dancing for joy and ex <laughs> a tremendous excitement. And then I said to them, I've brought the Jesus film. Oh, great excitement. <laughs> and then I said, do you know where we can get a projector? And everyone's faces just fell. And you could just like, he didn't bring a projector. <laughs> and I was asked to have a generator. Said, no. Well, there's always power failure here. <laughs> and we don't have electricity. You know, we, we occasionally get power most of the time. So South Africa might have power failure. Mm. Mozambique occasionally got electricity. Yeah, sometimes gets power. Yeah. Exactly. And the, the tap's always open and the plugs are always mm. in the bath and the bucket was under the tap outside, waiting for when some water trickled through because uh, it, that was an occasion. So uh, I'm thinking, you know, I'm not very well prepared for this. I come up with a film but no projector into a place of perpetual power failure. And I'm praying over what can we do. Along comes a man to me. He says, come to corner Vladimir Lenin and Mao Zedong tomorrow. Uh, I work at the British Embassy. So we went to Vladimir Lenin and Mao Zedong, and there's a British Embassy consulate. And uh, there was a nice gentleman there who was very happy to lend me a 16-mil projector. He said, but he said, I need to warn you, there's, there's power failures most of the time. You only get a few hours of electricity a week. And uh, hmm. he said... Um, our generator is too big. Uh, we don't have a portable generator that you could borrow. So I don't know how you're going to show the film, but you're welcome to borrow the projector. Well, I went and uh, prayed and got out the cables and where's the plugs? Well, there were no plugs. The plugs were all torn out the walls. So a bit mm -hmm. of wires dangling out. So I got the wires and, of course, had to take the plugs off uh, our projector and... Um, wrap the wires together and try and get the right wires with the right mm. wires matching. <laughs> and uh, I said, let's pray for electricity. You can see the people around me were thinking, this man really is a bit stupid. <laughs> and and would you believe it? God's mercy. Electricity <laughs> came on in time for the film. And we showed the film for about an hour and a half. Mm. And then the power went off. In the middle of the crucifixion, thought, well, that's not bad. This is a good spot to stop and preach. So, but I was told, look, when the power goes off, that's it. You won't have more power for another week. Not a problem. Stood up with a torch, preached and preached uh, through interpreter, emphasized the importance of resurrection, and the power came on again. Incredible. We had another 20 minutes, managed to finish the, mm. uh, the film, Resurrection, Ascension, Great Commission, stood up, gave a gospel uh, call, and now again, the pitch dark, and there's, uh, I see people coming out of the, out of the shadows, and they're wearing camouflage and they're carrying AK-47s. And my heart leaps and I think, I'm heading to prison. And they knelt down and they put their rifles in dust and they bent over and they started to pray. Mm. And they were responding to my call to commit their lives to the Lord. Mm. Incredible answers to prayer. I had the mm. opportunity of baptizing Falimo soldiers, bringing people to the Lord. Just things that you couldn't have imagined. The, the grace of God in providing in so many mm. different ways. I... 
Yes, I can just say that um, it was like traveling on eagle's wings. There was, hmm. Lord is very merciful, especially on my first mission. He expected me to be better prepared for the second. Um, <laughs> and the second we went in with generator and projector and things like that. But um, but it's just, just, yes, I can just see so many answers. How God guided us to Sudan, the people he had um, mm. track us down. For example, Canon Kenneth Baringua. He had read about my work in Mozambique and Angola, and he was sure that I'm the person that they need to come up to Sudan. And he sent me a letter. And I was hitchhiking across East Africa to minister in Rwanda and the wake of the Rwandan genocide. And I was hoping to meet up with this Kenneth Kenneth Springer, and he tracked me down. He tracked me down in Nairobi, and I was only there for a few days. And by God's grace, we met, and he just took me by the shoulders and said, you must come to Moraland. I mean, what a Macedonian call. And so much of our mission in the last 25 years has been around uh, Moraland. I'm talking about 27 years ago. This was Mm. 1995. So... Yes, God has guided and he's provided in some phenomenal ways. My first mission behind the Iron Curtain, I was going up to East Germany, and who would have known that I was doing that? I mean, we didn't talk about missions we were doing ahead of time, very secret. And I go past the post office on the way to the airport, and in the post office, uh, PO Box 74 Newlands, there's an envelope with a whole lot of hundreds of German D-Mark, Deutschmark. Hmm from Reverend Erlo Stegen. Now, he didn't know I was going to Germany because nobody knew. And he had never sent me Deutschmark before. And uh, it's exactly what I needed on the day I needed it for where I was going. And um, a, a couple of years later, I was also heading out to, to Eastern Europe. And uh, again, from the same person, a couple of hundred Deutschmark uh, in an envelope. Uh, by the way, it just shows how much safer the postal service was back then. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was cash. And... Uh, <clears throat> And I got it. And, you know, these sort of provisions, God had so many amazing provisions. And and so uh, in this book we work on, I've, I've got quite a few of these answers to prayer, which mm. just, it's stagger one to just realize, because some people may wonder, well, does prayer work? Well, we know it does. Mm. That's why we're alive and out of prison. And there's many testimonies to God's grace and mercy in this book. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that's certainly taught you a lot about faith and trusting God in the mission field as you see these answers to prayer. So what are some other things that you have learned about faith through your missions? Well, God just loves to be trusted. Now, that's a quote from Bill Bethlehem. God yeah. does love to be trusted. And it's it's so important that that we are willing to step out in faith. And uh, you know, some like to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I would like to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell, said C.T. Studd. Well, I can testify that... Um, Despite conducting speaking tours in 38 countries across four continents, I've never required speaker's fees. I've never taken royalties from any of my books. And uh, all proceeds go directly into the mission. And everything's been accomplished by uh, faith. In fact, we haven't got a fundraiser. We've never had a fundraiser. We've never done fundraising. We've never taken up an offering Mm. in the 40 years of the mission. And so as far as faith goes, you know, where God guides, he provides God's servant is God's responsibility. God's work done God's way will not lack God's supply. There I'm quoting from Hudson Taylor. He launched the world's first uh, faith mission. And uh, C.T. Studd put it so well, you only have one life and it'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so living by faith and working by faith, it's been it's been an adventure. And I learned this in Hospital Christian Fellowship because Francis Grimm would send me on, on a tour, like to go to every... Christian bookshop in the country. There were 
about 280 at that time, um, without um, any money or transport. So I'd hitchhike around the country to go and market the HCF books mm. for hard publishers. And uh, I would be hitchhiking around. I mean, just think of uh, what that requires. And, and I managed to get lifts. I did about 140,000 kilometers hitchhike in the early years of this mission around the country and across the borders. And regularly, where did I sleep at night? Rolled out in a sleeping bag by the side of the road, by the side of the N2, the N1, uh, the N3, uh, in parking areas, in um, parks, literally. Uh, sometimes woke up in the middle of the pouring rain and in the morning I remember getting up in Georgia and just lifting my sleeping bag and the water just gushed out and I was soaked and everything was soaked and started my day like that. But then other times, to show you how it was a different life back then, how the society was different, I w would frequently, if I was caught in the rain, out nowhere to stay overnight, you'd go to a church and most churches were not locked. Hmm. You could open a church and go in and line a pure carpet and uh, forget about armed response and uh, yeah. um, motion sensors and so on. The average church wasn't even locked. Hmm. And um, then there were other times where I could literally go uh, in the middle of nowhere in a town that you've never heard of and um, uh, and training and I'd, I'd walk up, uh, knock on the door and say, excuse me, would you mind if I laid out my sleeping bag on your porch uh, tonight? And Oh no, come on in. It's complete strangers. The amount of times just welcomed you in and uh, other times, I even asked the police if I could sleep in a cell. And, and the cells were clean, neat, clean <laughs> sheets. Of course, they left the gate open. Um, but uh, uh, the kind of hospital just explains a different era. But um, mm. I, I traveled around the country and I saw a whole different um, a realm of life. And so that's how you could actually operate with absolutely no money, hitchhiking around the country and ministering wherever God led and provided so there's some of those adventures are recorded in this new book too. Mm. Yeah, and so a lot of a lot of your ministry has been sort of short-term cross-border missions assisting the persecuted church working with the locals who are there. And so a lot of it has been evangelism, showing the Jesus film, um speaking to people who have never heard alongside of the local church or the local ministry. So what are some things that you've learned as you've reached out in evangelism over these years? Well, it's so important to not try to reinvent the wheel. You know, there's so many great ministries that we need to use. And I was super um, fortunate in my first year as a Christian to be introduced to Evangelism Explosion. James Kennedy, Like a Mighty Army, EE3, wow, outstanding. I was at uh, Midridge Baptist Church and uh, they had the EE program and I was introduced to it and first saw James Kennedy's uh, films on 16 mil black and white actually mm. at that stage. And and uh, I was trained in, in the door-to-door -door personal evangelism, one-on-one, -on -one, the three questions to ask people, you know, um, mm. and uh, it, it was so helpful. So EE really helped, and it guided a lot of our work. Later, when I learned about Way of the Master, using Ten Commands-based evangelism to go for the conscience, and uh, that just was a natural fit and it was so good, and praise God for Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron and the outstanding Living Waters materials that they've provided, and that's become a key part of our work as well. Gospel Recordings has provided phenomenal resource for reaching the uh, illiterate people in particular. They've got audio gospel presentations in 4,000 languages. Wow. And so we've never found a language that we minister amongst that didn't have uh, some mm. of Gospel Recordings material. So that's always been super good. World Missionary Press has been part of every mission across the border. I came across WMP early on. 
And they've provided us with millions, actually now tens of millions of gospel booklets. And we now their local distributors as well. And so, um, in fact, we also distributors for um, Living Waters, for Way of the Master as well, and for Answers in Genesis. Mm. And I praise God for all these great resources because when we found great resources, we've used them and um, sent mm. some of our people also to be trained by Child Evangelism Fellowship. And uh, all of these great evangelistic tools like the Jesus Film, these are tools that we can use and they are very helpful. Uh, but when you get down to it, there's nothing to be boots on the ground, feet on the street, door-to-door, mm. one-on-one personal evangelism. I think personal evangelism is still the very, very best. Mm. And yes, there's always a place for crusades and for open-air preaching and so on. But let's face it, if you speak to the average person, most people came to Christ through one-on-one personal evangelism. Mm. I am one of the three percent of Christians who can say I was saved in the evangelistic crusade. Mm. Um, I came to the Lord in the evangelistic crusade, but only three percent of Christians did. The vast majority will say it's it's personal one-on-one uh, ministry, and yeah. so we should put most of our emphasis into the personal one-on-one. Mm. And EE and where the master the best training for that. And it's amazing the resources and how they've developed over the years. I mean, think about how you took the Jesus film on these sixteen mil projectors. Now you can go on. Line and you can download the Jesus film in any of these languages for free, and you can send it to someone on their smartphone or the U version Bible app. Wow. You can get the Bible in any language, the audio Bible. You just say, "Hey, here's a link," and you instantly have the Bible in all these different languages. And so, I mean, the the resources are right here at our fingertips. You just need an app, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. So, anyone who's has a heart for evangelism, there are these resources right there at our fingertips. Um, so, what um, what have you learned? from other missions, like other ministries that have been working in the field? Oh, yes. I mean, it's, it's been a joy and a privilege. So, for example, uh, one of the privileges we had at Hospital Christian Fellowship is we would have people like Brother Andrew come past as regular guest speaker because he is a good personal friend of Franz Grimm, and he is on the board of HCF. So uh, I remember uh, Brother Andrew coming past. I'd just come out the army uh, end of 1981, and he said, 1982, we are going to launch – the seven-year Jericho prayer march with a focus on bringing down the Berlin Wall and the Iron mm. Curtain, collapsing the Soviet Union and opening up Eastern Europe and Russia to the gospel. And I sat there stunned because I'd seen the Berlin Wall. I'd seen the Iron Curtain. That wasn't coming down in our lifetime. That was going to be up until Jesus came back immediately. <laughs> there was no doubt in the mind of those of us who lived at that time. That just a permanent fixture of, of, uh, of life. And there was no chance of bringing it down. And, and he said the Leipzig prayer meeting in East Germany's launched this, and the symbol is the torch. Not meaning the uh, the ones with batteries we're talking about, the blazing torch, like candle. And people would come with unlit candles, and they'd, they'd have them all lit from a central torch. And they'd go home, and they'd put their candle in the windowsill of a house that's totally in darkness, you have the windows, uh, curtains open, and the symbol of light is more powerful than darkness. All the darkness cannot put out a single candle. And that uh, truth is more powerful than error and lies, and the gospel is more powerful than communism. And and this was the the whole movement throughout Eastern Europe of the churches praying for the downfall of communism. Wow, what a great emphasis. And although I wasn't very believing, I was highly skeptical, but I saw the Berlin Wall come down. Mm. Uh, 1989, all over Eastern Europe, from one to the other, every communist um, satellite state fell like dominoes across uh, and with Romania being the most spectacular, the overthrow of the Christmas Revolution of Ceausescu, extraordinary. And um, 
Yes, there's a lot to learn from other missions, and I learned a lot from Hospital Christian Fellowship. Uh, that was very formative for us. And from all these other great groups, and praise God for Answers in Genesis, uh, Way of the Master, EE, uh, so many others, uh, Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, these are good groups that are all doing phenomenal work. And, and I suppose I might have learned the most from Operation World, which puts together from all the missions around so you can see what's been done in the past, what needs to be done now, who's active doing what. If we know what the other teams are doing, we can be better team workers and networkers. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. And so often we know who to um, send to where. Many of the people that I've recruited and trained and discipled in my Bible study and prayer group, especially in the military, ended up in Wycliffe Bible Translators, Youth of the Mission, Operation Mobilization, many others, because I knew who was working where and I could recommend people to those different places. And so it's important for us to know what's going on. We mustn't be walking around like blinkers, like mm. the horses wearing those blinkers and not aware of anything going on outside of our denomination or, or local congregation. And uh, Operation World definitely helps open up your eyes to what God's body is doing worldwide and, mm. and the part we can play in it. Mm. And someone who's had a huge impact in your life is Bill Bathman, and I had the privilege of meeting him, not for very long, but I think I knew him about seven or eight years before he went to be with the Lord. And what sort of things did you sort of glean from Bill Bathman? He always had oh. some nugget of wisdom or oh. input. What a preacher, what an evangelist, what a gifted evangelist. Mm. In fact, the, the people in Eastern Europe told me that the revival that broke out in Romania in 1982 uh, was... Uh, it grew out of his preaching series. He had the crusade in Second Baptist Church of Radia in Romania, and that, that was where, where the revival was birthed. And uh, Bill Bethan's ministry has always been powerful and dynamic, but you can't compare his ministry in the West with his ministry in Eastern Europe. Mm. Amongst those people, you just saw him on a whole different level, and uh, you could just see the faces of the whole congregation just shining with such love and appreciation for this man who came when no one else came. In the darkest days, when nobody else cared or dared, Bill Bathman was there. And you cannot beat that kind of depth of contact where he's been there for years and years and years. And he's invested and he's done so much for them on so many levels and been their mouthpiece and support them. And so I must, I've, I've traveled more with Bill Bathman than anybody else and into more countries. And in fact, he said he had never traveled with anyone else as much as he traveled with me. We ministered throughout the whole of Europe. East and West, uh, driving in all over. And I must say, driving with Bill Bathman revives your prayer life because he was a very <laughs> fast driver, very fast. And he would, I mean, he'd be locking in and gearing down and zooming out and you've got oncoming traffic and he's weaving in and out. And uh, he obviously believed in using his time wisely. But um, <laughs> uh, that was something else. Even took me to Mexico and I took him all the way up to Sudan. And of course, we ministered everywhere from Zambia, Zimbabwe, uh, also Angola, Southwest Africa, all over. So uh, with Bill Bathman, when he was celebrating 50 years in ministry, he was then, I think, 73 years old. I took him up to Sudan, flew him in, and I had to be quite devious about it to um, avoid either my wife, his daughter, or uh, my mother-in-law, his wife, uh, stopping this because they would have thought this is a bit hairbrained scheme, taking a grandfather and great-grandfather mm. into the field. <laughs> but uh, Bill Bathman, 73, he knew he wanted to go we flew him into Sudan. He was People fell on their knees to see a gray-haired man because life expectancy yeah. in Sudan was more in the 40s, you know. See a man in his 70s with gray hair, wow, the people literally mm. fell on their knees before it was like a patriarch had arrived amongst them. And uh, he had a great impact. 
Well, when we got back to Cape Town, would you know it? Bill Bathman buys a land cruiser, uses our trailer, fills it up with our material, and drives overland to Sudan. wasn't enough to fly, to fly into Sudan. Mm. He drove up and then donated this vehicle and all the contents that <laughs> flew back out. And he said, I've always wanted to go overland African. And by then, his wife and daughter had given up trying to stop him. And uh, <laughs> But what, what a... Um, a, a man who put his whole life into evangelism, and he really was a soul winner. And to to learn from Bill Bathon, and he is he is patient, and he would invest in the people, and you could just see that in, in those lives. So, yeah, as Bill Bathon uh, so often said, God just loves to be trusted. So he really epitomized a faith missionary who was willing to step out. And uh, amongst the different things he uh, taught us, when you cross borders, Wear a tie jacket. And <laughs> and it's true. The, the border officials treat you better when you dress better. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I saw all his border crossings. Uh, you know, he, would, he wouldn't he would sit in the car waiting for them. He'd be out there and stand in quiet. But it's sort of an intimidating thing to these average border guard, having a man dressed in a suit and tie, standing there, and you know, they would bustle around and get things happening. <laughs> and you certainly experience your deal of being in stressful and traumatic situations, coping with conflict, criticism, being in war zones. Uh, what are some things you've gleaned from those as we uh, come to sort of the end of our time here? Well, yes, uh, soldiers, firemen, paramedics, emergency workers, missionaries who exposed to these kind of mind-numbing, shocking scenes. Uh, I'm, I've seen more than my fair share of, of burned-out, bombed-out churches and, and corpses and uh, waded myself through the killing fields of Mozambique and the mm. Holocaust in Rwanda. So how how can one uh, deal with this? Well, I think the most important thing is we've got to bring it to the Lord in prayer. Mm. We have to pray the Psalms, and I think praying the Psalms is so therapeutic because there's Psalms that deal with everything, from joy to pain to agony to, to grief. Uh, it's all there, uh, cries for justice, prayers for justice. And so learning to pray the Psalms is very helpful. But I always determined I must speak up for these people. I, I cannot have been exposed to this for no reason. I will ensure that this is documented, that this is published. And this is a key reason why I've written books like Holocaust Rwanda and the Killing Fields of Mozambique, Faith and Defiance Sudan, Slavery, Terrorism, Islam. I, I have to uh, make it available so that these people did not die or suffer in vain. And then do something about it, whether it's as campaigning to get people out of prison. I've got the very uplifting story of Isaiah Moyo, who I met in prison in Zambia, who had been tortured and abused, a young 27-year-old truck driver from Soweto, uh, who had lent money to ANC cadres in Lusaka. Mm. Instead of paying him back, they just accused him of being a spy. Don't need evidence for that. So this poor chap is in prison. He's got a wife and two children back in Soweto. And uh, his knees were calloused, on his knees praying. Mm. Um, he had pussy sores all over his body where they pushed the red hot pokers in mm. um, from the fire. And uh, this poor chap, well, of course, when I was released from Zambia because of pressure and Margaret Thatcher intervening uh, to get us out of prison there, and that's whole story and drama and international intrigues part of the book. But uh, when I was on my first mission overseas, I was speaking of Fazal Moyo as, as one specific person, name and detail and face. And International Society of Human Rights Convention in Frankfurt, uh, the BBC World Service and so on. Well, I was told later that uh, a prison warden came running into Isaiah's cell saying, Isaiah, Isaiah, that South African missionary who was here, 
he's on the radio, he's on BBC, he's talking about you. And <laughs> and there they've got the shortwave radio and the whole cell's hearing this in, in cell 11 where we'd been locked up, the presidential detainee cell. And uh, uh, Isaiah said after that, he became a celebrity in the prison. No more mistreatment. He got male sex brought in because I gave his address over then. Mm. He, people sent him the salt and soap and sugar and um, everything that uh, that everyone around would want. He had the pens and the papers and food and all. So he had all the trading items and nobody mistreated him. And after a few months, he was set free and mm. reunited wow. with his wife and children. So uh, that was just another example of you. we have the power to um, le- release um, what we – uh, loose will be loose and what we bind will be bound. We've seen prisoners set free. So I think doing mm. something positive yeah. is so important to cope with uh, this post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Uh, if we seek to serve the persecuted and we make a difference in lives, that makes sense of it. But if we did nothing, well, that would fester. Mm. Yeah, and so many people can respond to life by becoming bitter, complaining, blaming God, blaming others. But rather, if we can take our anger and do something constructive with it, be angry and do not sin. So there's a something we can do. There's always something you can do to raise awareness to help mm-hmm. others and things like that. So looking back, what are some of the most sort of overarching, important lessons you've learned? What are some things that can best prepare people going into the field uh, as we... Well, I, th- I think um, learning from examples of excellence, reading Christian biographies, missionaries and martyrs and people who've suffered for Christ, it puts our own um, inconveniences into perspective when, mm-hmm. we, when we read those. And it also encourages us to know that, that God has been able to enable these people to go through much worse situations, mm-hmm. and it should inspire us and give us the confidence to uh, persevere, to not give up, to not turn back. And uh, so... Uh, what the Lord has commanded us to do, he will inevitably enable us to fulfill. God never gives a command without giving the promises and the, the power and the, the means to fulfill it. So the Lord's command us to deny ourselves, to forsake the world, to take up a cross, to follow him. And the whole life of a Christian involves self-denial, self-sacrifice, self-discipline, unselfish service for Christ and to his creatures. And so I think a willingness to suffer and mm. to endure hardship and abuse and to do so graciously and joyfully as unto the Lord, this is essential. Whatever we do, we should do it wholeheartedly as unto the Lord, not to men. It's a tremendous privilege to be a servant of Christ, and we should always live in the light of eternity. Mm. Amen. So your book is coming out pretty soon here, which documents a lot of these things and shares stories and anecdotes of how God has been teaching you things, the answers to prayer, uh, seeing just the Lord at work and the many different areas over these last 40 years. When is your book coming out and where can people... Well, by God's grace, it should be out in two days. Uh, mm-hmm. Here Where's we are that? on Tuesday, uh, uh, the 5th, and uh, on the 7th of uh, this Thursday, we are having a book launch uh, on the 40th anniversary of Frontline's first cross-border mission into communist Mozambique, a restricted access area. And so a person can contact us. You can either email mission at frontline.org.za or you can go on a website www.frontlinemissionsa.org um, and you will see the links or you can go straight to admin at christianlibertybooks.co.za uh, email admin at christianlibertybooks.co.za or go on the christianlibertybooks.co.za website and you'll see how to order the book and it's going to be available in hardcover in softcover uh, and that's 46 chapters 448 pages 440 odd pictures and maps 
and uh, it'll be also available soon as an ebook and as a print on demand. So people all over the world should be able to get it, no matter how difficult your postal service may be. <laughs> and in Africa, that is a real thing. The postal service is very challenging. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We hope this has been an inspiration to you and helpful to those of you who are thinking about missions and praying for missions. And we just hope that this will encourage you to get out there and do something for the kingdom of God. As Isaiah 42, 16 says, I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. And what a privilege it is that we have a God who will never leave or forsake us in Christ. Thank you so much for joining us. Good night and God bless.